0: The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers who had embraced Jesus as their Messiah, but were struggling to follow him. At the time, the temple was standing, sacrifices were being offered, feast days observed. In fact, the religion of Judaism was at its zenith. Thus, their Jewish friends and family were scoffing out loud at these crazy Christians. Why would anyone leave behind the security blanket of ancient traditions and institutions to follow this no-name preacher from Galilee? And mounting pressure was being applied. Some of these Hebrew believers had been banished from their families. Their land and property had even been confiscated. Some had been excommunicated from the synagogue. The heat was on. The message was renounce Jesus or be barred from the Jewish community. The temptation for these believers was to deny Christ and to return to the cozy confines of their Jewish religion. The book of Hebrews was written to affirm and strengthen the teetering faith of these shaky believers. Hebrews explains how Jesus is better than Judaism, or for any religion for that matter. He's better than the Old Testament prophets, the angels, the law, Moses, Joshua, the Jewish priesthood. He works in a better temple, makes better promises, establishes a better covenant, offers a better sacrifice. These are the themes of the book. God has replaced the fixtures of religion with faith in Jesus. The Hebrew believers who received this letter were right to leave behind their Jewish traditions and embrace a better way of relating to God. The book of Hebrews warns them not to retreat. Don't go back. Hold on to their faith. Again, Jesus is better than Judaism. In fact, Hebrews says to us all, you and me, that Jesus is better than any other way of life. Be proud of Jesus. Hold fast to his promises. Don't you ever back down from what you believe. One sidebar before we plunge in, the question always arises, who wrote the book of Hebrews? And the various suggestions are all intriguing. Scholars have argued for Timothy, Philip, Barnabas, Apollos, even Aquila and Priscilla. Some have suggested that Paul wrote it in Hebrew and Luke translated it into Greek. Who wrote Hebrews? It's kind of like Clairol. Only your hairdresser knows for sure. No, only God knows for sure. But here's the important point. It really doesn't matter who held the pen, for it was the Holy Spirit who inspired what was written. Ultimately, the author of this book is God. In fact, Hebrews begins, God. Understand, here is the most fundamental fact in all of the universe. God is. This is a truth that's self-evident. The symmetry and the order that we see in nature testifies to a creator. Design necessitates a designer. You don't get order and symmetry from randomness and chance. God is. The founder of modern astronomy, Johannes Kepler, once wrote, the undevout astronomer is mad. I mean, simple laws of probability explain how ludicrous it is to suggest that the universe sprung up out of chance and chaos. Take ten quarters. Then number those ten... There are actually 13 there, I'm sorry. But then number those ten quarters, one through ten... The odds of pulling out number one is one in in ten. But then the odds of pulling out number one and number two in consecutive order, boy, that increased the odds. That's one in a hundred. The odds of pulling out numbers one, two, and three in order would be one in a thousand. And the odds of pulling out numbers one through ten consecutively would be one in ten billion. Now realize the simplest living cells consist of strings of 55 amino acids all assembled in an exact sequence. Thus the odds of these chemicals emerging by chance from a primordial soup in order 1 through 55 to form a living cell. Well that's beyond reasonable speculation. Our planet and its burgeoning life can only be explained by the existence of a creator. This is why the psalmist says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. God is. But verse 1 also holds the second most fundamental fact in all of the universe, and that is that God has spoken. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke. The God who exists has not been silent. He's spoken into time and space. He has declared His will to humanity. Philosopher Christopher Morley, he once wrote, My theology briefly is that the universe was dictated but not signed. In other words, God exists but he remains incognito. He refuses to play his cards, he remains mum. An atheist denies God exists. An agnostic refuses to believe that he's spoken. But the writer of the book of Hebrews, he assures us God is and God has spoken. Verse 1 in a Greek Bible uses the terms polymuros and polytropos, or many portions and many ways. God spoke through many mouthpieces and by many different methods in time past to the fathers by the prophets. In the Old Testament, God's revelation unfolded bit by bit, a portion at a time, like the unrolling of a scroll. Each of the prophets penned a successive line in the unfolding drama. Isaiah taught us the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah spoke of the judgment of the Lord. Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord. Daniel, the Lord's sovereignty. Hosea, the the love of the Lord. Zechariah, the faithfulness of the Lord. God revealed Himself in many portions. But He also revealed Himself in many ways. For the prophets were versatile In their deliveries, some preached sermons. Others, they acted out object lessons, divine dramas. Still others did miracles or interpreted dreams. You see, in times past, God spoke through many mouths and through many methods. But he has in these last days spoken to us by his son. God's revelation is no longer coming to us piecemeal, bit by bit. Today, God has summed up all that he has wanted to say. He has put it all into one package. He has rolled up the entire divine message into one revelation. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's complete and final word to man. If you want to hear what God has to say to the world today and understand His will, then behold His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. The creation came through Jesus. It belongs to Jesus, and it'll be His in the end. And here in verse 3 is an explanation of His nature who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. You see, this is why Jesus is superior to the Old Testament prophets. Just examine his nature. He is, according to the writer of Hebrews, the brightness of God's glory. Jesus is to God's glory what a flashbulb is to the light in this room. He's the full blaze. He's the concentration of God's glory. You remember Psalm 72 verse 19, it shouts, let all the earth be filled with God's glory. But take that glory, the glory that has been spread out over all the earth, glory the universe itself can't contain and compress it into a single life. And you'll find Jesus. Our Lord is the brightness of His eternal glory. And he is also the express image of God's person. You see, Jesus isn't just God's reflection. He is the exact image or the exact reproduction of God. You see, prophets were representatives of God, but Jesus is a reproduction. He's not just of similar form. He consists of the very same stuff. Take a waxed apple. Appearance-wise, it resembles... A real apple. But bite into it and you quickly realize that it's not. But take a bite out of Jesus and you'll realize that he really is God. Not just in shape, but also in substance. He is the exact image of God's person. And he's not only the creator of the universe, Jesus is also its sustainer. Verse 3 tells us, For he is upholding all things by the word of his power. Jesus is the atomic glue. You see, the nucleus of every atom is a mystery. What keeps its bundle of proteins from splitting apart? The laws of physics teach us that like charges repel. And yet something, or better yet, someone is stronger than molecular mechanics. Hebrews tells us that it's Jesus that upholds all things. By the word of his power, he keeps the universe from literally unraveling. And closer to home, it's by the power of his word, the Bible, that keeps my fragile life from falling apart. And as if upholding all things were not a big enough job for Jesus, we're told that he also accomplished a mission. Verse 3 tells us that he came into the world to save what he had always upheld. For when he had by himself... Purged our sins. And I love this verse. <laughs> Notice Jesus purged our sins all by himself. He didn't need anybody else's help. He blotted out all of our sins for all time by himself. He was big enough to do the job alone. Have you heard the joke, how many amoebas does it take to change a light bulb? One. One. No 2, no 4, no 8, no 16, no 32. The point is, amoebas multiply. Well, it might take a lot of amoebas to change a light bulb, but our salvation was a one-man job. Without the Father's intervention, without angelic assistance, without the help of His feeble disciples, without the help of the stupefying narcotic that the Romans used to deaden the pain. No, no performance-enhancing drugs for Jesus. No, our Lord endured the cross. He purged our sins, and then He conquered death, and He did it all by Himself. And now God has rewarded and exalted Jesus. He has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels. The angels hover around God's throne, but Jesus occupies a seat on that throne. Apparently, God's throne is a two-seater. There's a place at God's right hand for Jesus. You see, his nature makes him better than the prophets. And his exaltation makes him better than the angels. And I'm not talking about Anaheim angels. Everybody's better than those angels this year. I'm talking about real deal angels. You see, in Judaism, angelic beings were highly revered. My, they were practically worshipped. Since the angels lived in God's presence and since they helped to convey the law to Moses, they were often elevated to divine status. And it's not just the Jews that have made that mistake. Have you noticed that people today in our pseudo-spiritual culture Become preoccupied with angels and angelic visitations when they should be concentrated on obedience to God. Everybody wants to be touched by an angel. But Hebrews says it's far better to be touched by Jesus Christ. And verse 4 tells us why. For as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they... For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a quote from Psalm 2 verse 7. And again, this time, he quotes 2 Samuel 7 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. You see, here are two Old Testament passages where God the Father addresses God the Son. Apparently, God has a son. The doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Jesus, the Son of God, is taught in the Old Testament as well as in the New. Now remember, we've gone over this many times, but remember in Hebrew culture, the son of a goat is a goat. The son of a man is a man. Thus the phrase, Son of God, means that Jesus is God. To refer to Jesus as the Son of was to ascribe to Him Equality with God. The point of this passage is that angels are servants of God, whereas Jesus is his son. Nowhere is an angel ever referred to as a child or an offspring of God. This puts Jesus in his own category, better than angels. Verse 6 But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, and remember this term firstborn doesn't always mean born first means more than that. Solomon, for example, was David's 10th son. But Psalm 89 verse 27 refers to him as his firstborn. Why? Because firstborn was a title of honor and authority within a family. Jesus was firstborn in the sense that he was head or heir of all of God's creation. Here we're told when Jesus came into the world, the father said, let all the angels of God worship him. Notice all the angels worshipped God, worshipped Jesus on that first Christmas. All the angels. Not just the angels who appeared to the shepherds on the outskirts of Bethlehem. But all the angels in every corner of the universe suddenly stopped whatever they were doing. Stopped right in their tracks and turned and worshipped the baby born in the manger on that first Christmas. And here's the point of these the point for these Hebrews. Why would you worship angels when angels worship Jesus? Hey, angels are servants. They're messengers, but Jesus is the hero of the angels. Verse 7 And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Again, angels are heaven's helpers. They wait on God and the saints of God. Angels serve before the throne. But it's the Son, it's the Lord Jesus who sits on that throne. Why get all excited about the bus boys when you can hang out with the boss? Verses 7 and 8 are great verses to recall the next time you talk to a Jehovah's Witness. Next time Serena Williams knocks on the door. These misled missionaries, they claim that Jesus was once an angel, that he was actually the angel Michael. But here Jesus is placed in juxtaposition to the angels. He is a different order of being. He is greater than angels. The psalmist says, to the Son, He, or God, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Notice, God calls Jesus God. That's a pretty strong proof text for the deity of Jesus. Show this verse to the cultist on your doorstep. Verse 9, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now here's a verse that gives us an interesting glimpse into the personality of Jesus while he was on the earth. Apparently, Jesus was a passionate, fiery person. He loved and he hated. Here we're told he loved what was right and he hated rebellion or lawlessness. And God anointed him or literally doused him with an extraordinary measure of gladness. In other words, I believe Jesus was a fun person to be around. Some of the, mus- the movies made about Jesus, they picture him as a straight-laced, stoic, somber. individual. His face kind of had granite-like features, like he was chiseled out of granite. That's how they picture Jesus. But I don't think so. Verse 9 tells us that he was anointed with the oil of gladness more than his companions. He was the most fun-loving, joyful, upbeat, grinning guy in the crowd. That was our Lord Jesus. Verse 10, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain, and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up. And they will be changed. Now understand, the birth of a human being is their beginning. This is true of all human beings except one. Jesus' Bethlehem birth wasn't his first rodeo. He had been to the earth before. The Bible teaches the pre-existence of Jesus. In verse 10, we're told, Jesus laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of his hands Jesus played a role in the Father's work from the creation. And he will be at the Father's right hand in the end when the universe is packed up like an old coat. Amazingly, verse 12 sounds like it was written by a modern-day physicist. Astronomers tell us that we live in an expanding universe, but eventually the galaxies will slow down and the gravitational force will take over and the universe will collapse in on itself. In the words of Psalm 102, verse 26, the heavens will fold up like an old cloak. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. One day the physical universe will be no more, but Jesus Christ will remain forever. Later we'll read in Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? The father promises his son dominion over all his enemies. The angels know service, not conquest. Jesus alone will hold God's scepter and rule. Verse 14 tells us the angels post, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? God never ordained angels to rule. There's only one angel who wanted to rule. And that was Lucifer, the devil. And it got him kicked out of heaven. You see, dominion is our destiny. It's for man to rule. The Bible promises that one day you and I will reign with Jesus. Angels were created to serve and to minister to us, to the heirs of salvation. There are verses, I think this one is included, that promote the idea of guardian angels. That an angel gets assigned to every believer. Psalm 91, verse 11, is another one of these verses. It says, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. They shall bear you up in their hands, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Apparently, angels are assigned to protect God's children. This past week, as I was working on the Bible study, I noticed a a news report. It came from New London, Missouri. The report came in that firemen had worked over an hour to free a young lady trapped in a smashed car. Maybe you heard about this in the news. When Katie called out for prayer, when she asked for someone to pray for her out loud, a priest suddenly appeared out of nowhere. He anointed the young girl with oil, and he assured the firemen that their efforts would succeed. 80, photogra- 80 photographs were taken of the crash scene, but later not one of those photographs showed the priest. After Katie was airlifted, several of the rescue workers went to find the priest to thank him for his intervention. The priest was nowhere to be found. The highway had been blocked, two or three miles in both directions. There were no bystanders, there were no parked cars, nowhere for the priest to go, but he was gone. Fire Chief Raymond Reed told the USA Today, I'd say whether it was an angel sent to us in the form of a priest or a priest that became an angel, I don't know. Either way, I'm good with it. I think it's a miracle. (laughs) (laughs) Was it really an angel? Who's to say? But it could have been. I do believe in guardian angels. When I get to heaven, I'm going to thank mine for the overtime I cost him. Hey, but don't trust in angels. I trust in their boss. You see, the angel who ministers to you, he doesn't love you. You're just an assignment to him. He's just following orders. It's the God of angel armies that's always by my side. God might send an angel to show us his compassion, but it's Jesus who really cares. Always remember, Jesus is better than the angels. We need to trust Jesus, which is why the author warns us in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. It's hard to believe, but the Hebrews were drifting from their faith in Christ. Jewish relatives and religion and tradition and superstition and social entanglements were all acting like a powerful undertow that was pulling this tiny raft of faith further and further from their hope in Christ. These believers were drifting, and it's time to wake up. He says, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, of course, he's referring here to the Old Testament law, You remember in Acts chapter 7, Stephen pointed out that the law of Moses had been mediated through angels. And God took seriously that angel-delivered covenant, so much so that the Jews who violated God's law, they ended up dying in the wilderness. You remember the story from Numbers. But if God enforces the covenant conveyed by angels, and Jesus is now the Lord of the angels, how much more seriously will He take the covenant instituted by Christ Himself, the covenant of faith, the new covenant? This is why the writer of Hebrews warns in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Our Savior and His salvation made our relationship with God Something the Old Testament prophets could only dream about. What a crime it would be for us to neglect that salvation and opt for some alternative. And he clarifies the salvation of which he's speaking. He says, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. The gospel that set us free was delivered not by prophets or by angels or busboys, but by the boss himself. Jesus came with the gospel. And then it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Eyewitnesses stake their integrity on the testimony of Jesus. Angels appear and then they vanish. But there were men willing to die for the gospel's sake. And God, too, testified of the gospel, verse 4. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. The gospel of grace is a covenant by which God Himself has placed His own stamp of approval. Signs and wonders and miracles and supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit all accompanied the spread of the gospel wherever it was preached. Read the book of Acts. And nowhere does the Bible speak of the ceasing of those miracles and spiritual gifts. I believe the Spirit of God will confirm the truths of God through supernatural means wherever the gospel gets preached. You see, the salvation we have in Christ is a masterpiece, quite frankly. God's wisdom and righteousness and mercy and grace all combine like paints on an artist's canvas. The gospel of Jesus is superior to the law of Moses in every way. And if you can't neglect the lesser law and escape its consequences, how then can you neglect the greater gospel and expect anything different? The Hebrews' initial step of faith was not enough. They had to continue in their faith, they had to press on and continue to believe. Abandon your faith. And you'll drift away. In chapter 1 of Hebrews, Jesus is superior to the angels because he's God. In chapter 2, the writer reveals to us that he's greater to the angels because he's man. He's God and man. Angels aren't God, but Jesus is. And no angel ever became a man, but Jesus did. And here's why he joined the ranks of humankind. Verse 5. For God has, has, for God has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying. And here the author of the book of Hebrews, he quotes David in Psalm chapter 8. Now picture a young shepherd boy. David, he's lying in the open field. He's curled up in his bedroll. He's laying there next to a dwindling fire. David's gazing up into the heavens, the starry sky. Out in the countryside, away from the glare of the city lights, you can see 5,000 stars with the naked eye. With a four-inch telescope, you can see two million stars. Did you know that with the 200-inch telescope on Mount Palomar, you can see over a billion stars? But David is sitting there in the field. He's looking up at the night sky. He's admiring God's handiwork, the beauty, and the enormity of creation. He is pondering God when suddenly he's struck by an amazing realization. God is sitting out there on the precipice of the universe. Who knows what vistas are within his sights. And yet what captivates God's attention? It suddenly hits David. While he is on earth thinking about God, God is in heaven thinking about him. Wow. David is amazed. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? God, why would you give us the time of day? Why would you give us any thought at all? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You know, in terms of our physical composition, human beings are not much. I mean, purchase the raw materials that make up the human body and you'll get change back from a $20 bill. And yet the value of a human being isn't wrapped up in what he is, but in what God intended him or her to be. As David says, You made him a little lower than the angels. But you have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Man was made in God's image and he was given dominion over nature, over animals and agriculture and angels until he sinned. Verse 8. For in that God put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. That's because he sinned. See, for the moment, the human race remains in our fallen state. I like what Augustine once said. He said, man is a good thing spoiled. Humorous Will Rogers, he put it this way. God made man a little lower than the angels and he's been getting a little lower ever since. Isn't that the truth? Today the glory of mankind, both in our origination and in our future coronation, is almost completely hidden from view. And this quite frankly is why babies get aborted. This is the logic by which wicked men Attempt ethnic cleansings. This was the thought behind the Holocaust. When men lose sight of the value of human life, they do atrocious things. View mankind apart from God's ultimate intentions. Apart and and, and deny man as an image bearer of God. And suddenly man becomes just another herd of animal. Whose population has to be thinned out from time to time. But there is one place where you can go and get a glimpse of what mankind was meant to be. Verse 9 tells us, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. He too became a man. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Jesus chained himself to the plight of all humans in order to break our chains to set us free, to be all that God intended man to be. Jesus was God stooping down and also man standing up. The Son of God was God setting us free and man as He was meant to be. When you experience the life of Jesus, then you cannot help but to become pro-life. You see the value of all men you see God's image in others. You become a lover of human beings. Notice verse 10 For it was fitting for him or for God, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect or complete through sufferings. You see, some truths aren't fully discerned until they're experienced. Take the sensation of pain. I can read in textbooks what pain is supposed to feel like. I can attach electrodes to a person's body and measure pain's effects. But when I'm done, what do I really know about the pain that they've experienced until I taste it for myself? You see, the invincible God made himself vulnerable. He came to drink from the cup of suffering intended for us. He bore the pain of our sin in His body. He wanted to experience our dilemma from the insider's point of view. This word, captain, in verse 10. The captain of of their salvation. It can be translated trailblazer or pioneer. Jesus blazed a new trail. He broke new ground. He established a new way to live. Jesus was the first to achieve glory through suffering, to bring life from death, to snatch victory out of the jaws of defeat. Jesus pioneered a new attitude, and now he stands on the glory side of it all, and he beckons us to follow. Are you willing to lay down your life and trust him to lift you up? If we become vulnerable, then he'll assure that we overcome. He says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus is the sanctifier. He is working in you and me to make us holy and pure. I am the sanctified. I'm the one being worked on. But amazingly, we're both considered to be one. The king of creation calls us his brethren. Can you believe it? How amazing. The whole time I was growing up, I wanted a big brother. In my family, I was the big brother. And I saw the benefits of having a big brother. When Ken got to high school, the coaches already knew the name of Adams. Ken had a ride to school from day one. Never had to ride the bus. Kids who didn't want to mess with me, they didn't pick on him. I mean, a kid brother has it easier than a big brother. I would have loved to have had someone older and stronger and wiser who would have looked out for me, who would have taught me the ropes. And after 20 plus years, I got my big brother. The day I pledged my life to Jesus, he became my big brother. Now I've got it made. God already knows my name. Jesus carries me where he's headed. He's headed. And you better not pick on me. You might be messing with Jesus. You know, sometimes big brothers they pick on their siblings, but not Jesus. He picks us up. Even if you act goofy and do stupid stuff to embarrass him, Jesus still loves you. It doesn't stop him from loving you. We're told in verse 11, he is not ashamed. He's not ashamed. Even when we act shameful, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Jesus always wants you by his side. Saying, in verse 12, here's a quote from Psalm 22, verse 22. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. Now notice where Jesus hangs out today. He is in the assembly of the church. He is with us singing praises to his Father. That's why whenever you come to church, you need to sing and praise God like you mean it. Why? Because Jesus may be sitting next to you. You wouldn't be lethargically, lamely, mouthing words to God. If you knew Jesus was standing right there next to you, you'd be singing with all your heart. Well, he really might be standing right there next to you. Verse 13, And again, I will put my trust in him. Jesus is trusting in the Father as he intercedes for us. Sometimes our faith falters, but Jesus is trusting the Father. To hear and answer his prayers on our behalf. And again. Here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood. He himself likewise shared in the same. Jesus took on our mortality. Our humanness. So we could share in his immortality. And that through death. He might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Notice this. Jesus took on a human body to die for all humans. Spirit doesn't cut or bleed. Jesus had to take on a body in order to die in our place. And ironically, through his death, Jesus has destroyed both the power of death and he has also freed us from the fear of death. D- did you hear about the man who was suffering from some severe headaches? He, he had tried Advil and Motrin and Tylenol and all the rest. The extra strength stuff. It just didn't work. Nothing worked. Finally went to the doctor. Well, the doctor did a brain scan. Did some x-rays on him. A couple of days later, the man went back in for the results. The doctor announced, I got some awful news. Your condition is terminal. I'm sorry. The patient was really shook up. He said, Doc, say it ain't so. He said, No, I'm, I'm afraid the results are conclusive. There, there's no doubt about it. The man asked, How much time do I have left? The doctor answered, Ten. The patient wanted to know, Ten? Ten what? Ten years? Ten months? Ten days? Ten what? The doctor continued, Nine. Eight, seven, six. (laughs) Hey, like that patient? Unless the Lord returns, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. And you know, it's the fear of death that haunts us most. It's like an ominous cloud hovering over a picnic. I mean, even if it never rains, the mere threat of it all spoils the fun. That's the way it is with death. It's the fear of death that steals the joys of life. You suffer from death long before you die. In fact, the thrill of a baby's birth is tempered by the realization that that little baby you're laying in a bassinet, one day you'll be laying in a grave. The joy of a wedding is dimmed by the inevitabil- inevitable separation that one day death will create. Death is the great spoiler. The grim reaper sees to it that nothing in this life lasts forever. For centuries, the fear of death ruled the hood. Its tyranny went unchecked until Jesus moved onto the block. Jesus beat Satan at his own game. We're told that through the death of Christ, Jesus destroyed the power of Satan. The Greek word means to render useless. In other words, Jesus declawed and detoothed the tiger called death. Jesus stripped death of its fear element. Through Jesus' death, he paid sin's penalty and he united us to God. Therefore, death no longer means the the cessation of life. Death no longer robs us of what matters most. It separates us for a time, but not forever. For we now have a hope that in Christ, death no longer is a punishment for sin. It's a graduation to greater blessing. Death is the stepping stone to higher glory. Death is the insight into a deeper awareness of God's presence. Today, death has become our friend. Verse 16. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. God gave blessings to Jesus and to those who follow him by faith, that he would have never doled out to mere angels. Again, Jesus is better than those angels. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. Here's another reason that Jesus became a man that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. God appointed men as priests, not angels. And Jesus is our high priest, our great high priest. The Latin word for priest or pontiff means literally bridge builder. And Jesus was the God-man. Therefore, he was the ultimate intermediary. He was the bridge with pylons on both shores. He was both fully God. He had a stake in the throne of God in heaven itself, but he was also fully man. He has a stake with us. And God had two requirements for a good priest. He was to be faithful to God, but he was also to be merciful to man. A priest had to represent God's truth clearly and boldly, yet he also had to be able to empathize with man's needs. You know, most people tend to gravitate toward one extreme or the other. They either stand for truth and become judgmental of others, or they empathize with men and they soften up God's demands. But not Jesus. He was both faithful and merciful. Here, is where Jesus qualified perfectly for this role as priest. He was faithful to God and merciful to man. And Jesus came, we're told, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The word propitiation means place of mercy. Jesus has become our place of mercy. The Hebrew word is kipporeth, or mercy seat. You remember in the Old Testament, the mercy seat was the gold lid that covered the Ark of the Covenant in the temple's innermost sanctum. It was over this mercy seat that the glory of God would hover and rest. This was where the priest applied the blood and atoned for sin. God's truth and mercy kissed and were reconciled at the mercy seat. In this one place, at this one time, God's righteousness was satisfied and his compassion was realized. All that needed to be done got done for you and I to be forgiven. It was at the mercy seat. And today, Jesus has become our mercy seat. You see, he is the one place in the world where sinful men can find mercy hey, if you want to know the love of God, if you want forgiveness for your sins, if you want to experience God's mercy to mankind, there's one place for you to go. You can't find it anywhere else. There's one place of mercy, one place of a propitiation, and that is at the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able To aid those who are tempted. What angel knows what it's like to tire or get sleepy or feel pain or bleed or be rejected by a friend? And yet Jesus was tempted in all these ways and more. And why? So that he can now help us when we encounter these same temptations. I love the word able to aid. Our words, able to aid, the phrase is a translation of the Greek word which means to run to the cry of a child. Jesus is that concerned about you. He runs to your cries. He cares about you. Jesus has been where you're at. He's known similar trials and heartaches and difficulties He is as sensitive to your hurts as a mom is to her little baby's bumps and scrapes. We have a priest who can help us where we hurt. And there we have the first two chapters of the book of Hebrews.